From Yahoo Finance, this is Electionomics. I'm Rick Newman. And I'm Alexis Christophorus. Welcome to this edition of Electionomics. Today, we are talking about the coronavirus stimulus money. How effective has it been? And what can we expect in the way of additional aid from both lawmakers and the Federal Reserve. We are delighted to be joined today by Doug Holtz-Aiken. He is former director of the Congressional Budget Office and also the director of the DC think tank American Action Forum. We should also mention that he has advised Republicans throughout his career, including the late Senator John McCain during his 2008 presidential run. And of course, my partner in crime, uh, full with a bow tie on and everything, once again outfitted with that bow tie, the lovely Rick Newman. I advise all the presidents. Nobody listens, though. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say they listened either. (laughs) You know, guys, before we jump in, I just want to give the audience sort of a a look at how much money has been committed so far to COVID-19 pandemic and the ensuing economic crisis. You've got the Federal Reserve having authorized more than five and a half trillion dollars in economic support. Another three point six trillion of support has been authorized through Uh, legislation through Congress. And not all of the money has been used yet. And of course, at the time of this uh, taping of this podcast, there was talk of yet another $3 trillion stimulus package, which has passed in the House, but appears to be dead on arrival in the Senate. Doug, as a former CBO director, you have a unique perspective here on sort of the nuts and bolts of federal spending. To your mind, what's your take on the stimulus we've received so far? What's working here? What isn't working? So I think there are a couple different angles to this. First, um, I think the Federal Reserve deserves tremendous amount of credit for taking what was a real crisis in the non-financial sector. Customers just disappeared, airlines, hotels, restaurants, you name it, uh, creating an instant cash flow crisis. And in that crisis, what did businesses do? Well, they sold anything they had to raise cash. And the royal financial markets with a huge sell-off, the Fed recognized this uh, quickly and made an outstanding pledge to uh, uh, buy uh, treasuries for as long as necessary and whatever amounts necessary to provide liquidity to uh, the markets. And they stopped this uh, crisis in the real economy from turning into a financial markets crisis at at the same time. That was a huge move. Uh, We have pretty good function in our our financial markets. Banks are in pretty good shape. That's a huge asset uh, as we try to weather the rest of it. So that one's doing great. Congress then tried to replicate the same strategy, which is flood the non-financial sector with with liquidity in this so-called CARES Act, which features the Paycheck Protection Program, loans to small businesses with the very intent that they not repay them and turn them into grants, and then a bunch of uh, Federal Reserve uh, facilities for larger businesses. I'd say the, the PPP has been the best thing that happened out of the CARES Act. It's gotten well over $500 billion out the door in a month. Uh, That was the month of April, which will go down in history as the worst month in the history of the U.S. economy. And it was the most effective stabilization we got. We got about $45 billion in unemployment insurance out, maybe a a couple hundred billion in in checks. The PPP really, for all of the complaints people have about the design and the performance, has turned out to be the best thing that happened uh, out of the CARES Act. Facilities that were set up by the CARES Act at the Fed haven't done anything for all practical purposes. None of that money has been... Uh, actually sent out the door. Main Street Lending Program hasn't even started. So I think you've got to look at the PPP as the thing that's worked the best. Doug, uh, you've seen the forecast. You may have made your own forecasts. We are still going to lose a ton of jobs here, right? Oh, yes. I mean, remember, this is 10 times worse than anything we've ever seen. 
Um, most forecasts are that the economy will contract uh, at an annual rate of 40% in the second quarter. That's a 10% loss in GDP. The worst year of the Great Depression was 12% in 1932. That's what we're experiencing in the second quarter of 2020. You know, we lost 20 million jobs in April. The previous worst month was two. You know, we saw the unemployment rate jump by 10 percentage points. The previous worst month was one. I mean, everything here is 10 times bigger than anything we've seen. And, and the response has to be big uh, for that reason. So since we're talking about the 2020 election, why don't you uh, tell us what is your best guess about what the economy is going to uh, feel like around Election Day as people are deciding whom to vote for? Uh, it's still going to be a lot worse than it was a year before. But there's this question. Will, will people feel like things are rapidly getting better or are they going to feel like they're mired in a quagmire? quagmire? What do you what do you think? So imagine we do fall at a 40 percent annual rate in the second quarter and that things like the Congressional Budget Office forecast turn out to be right for the second half of the year. Then we'll, we'll grow at five percent in the third quarter compared to dropping at 40. That's going to feel fantastic. And, and, and uh, people are going to be slightly euphoric. And then it's going to tail off from that. And we're going to have relatively modest growth at a level of unemployment that remains high, a level of economic activity overall that remains kind of low. And I, I think the electorate's going to be a little bit disgruntled and uh, unhappy with the state of affairs. What do you think the next stimulus package needs to have in it to really make a difference? Because now there's talk that as, as different parts of the country start to reopen, is stimulus in the form we've been getting it the most effective way to get money into people's pockets? Or Republicans, some Republicans have talked about incentivizing sort of like incentive payments to get people back to work, to get the economy reopened. So to your mind, what does the next stimulus package look like? Uh, it certainly has to look different. Uh, the CARE strategy really was, let's address the cash flow crisis out there in large swaths of the economy by flooding it with money. And it wasn't really stimulus. It was, let's put the economy in suspended animation for two and a half months. And when we get to the other side, stop asking businesses to do nothing, which is like, don't lay people off. Don't shut your doors. Don't do things. Instead, have them do things like grow, hire, uh, and, and deliver uh, an increase in the standard of living. So it, it better look different or it's not going to work. There will be now big disagreements about what constitutes the right strategy. You have to have a strategy in the next round. Uh, how much of that will focus on demand-side stimulus, which we've seen a lot of in, in the Democrats' proposals, uh, additional rounds of checks and um, uh, traditional Keynesian spending programs, or addressing so, some, I think, fairly predictable issues on the supply side, continued shocks from uh, uh, the virus itself, regional lockdowns or reoccurrence in the fall, uh, the supply-side necessity of every employer changing their operations to accommodate the the employees back in a safe manner. How do you run a restaurant if you have to have a tiny kitchen? They can't be in there. They got to have more space. How do you do the the serving in, in these confined um, dining rooms? Fewer customers. That means you have fewer customers for a much more expensive footprint. What does a restaurant look like uh, in the fall of 2020? So they're going to be some big supply side shocks where everybody tries to figure out how to get people back in the building safely. Uh, you might want to concentrate on helping businesses you know, deal with that uh, as part of a strategy for growth. So these stimulus bills have actually been bipartisan at a time when we didn't think uh, Congress could do anything bipartisan anymore. And lo and behold, Congress's approval rating skyrocketed all the way up to somewhere yeah. in the 30 percent range, maybe 35 percent. Um, do you feel like either party is getting more of an advantage from the stimulus than the other? Or 
uh, nobody's getting an advantage here, which would actually be fine. Uh, I, I think uh, nobody's gotten an advantage out of the, the three, four, if, if you count the, the first health bill uh, acts of Congress to address the, the, the COVID-19 crisis. Um, I, I think they deserve genuinely high marks for the CARES Act, which was large and was necessarily large, was done quickly on a bipartisan basis, and actually had the right stuff in it. I mean, it had stuff for the business community. It had stuff for the supply chain by keeping the airlines uh, flying. And it had help for those individuals, the very many individuals who've been damaged by this, you know, pandemic, uninsurance, un sick leave, all sorts of things have been set up. So it's hard to complain about that. I think they, they, they both deserve a lot of credit. Do you think that we should be worried about the deficit? I mean, it was already into the stratosphere before all this. Ah, nobody cares about that anymore. Well, apparently not. No, please come to an agreement. <laughs> Chairman Powell said when he was asked recently, uh, and he said, uh, that's not the priority right now. We, we, we can't be thinking about that. We have a, you know, a, an emergency situation in essence, I'm paraphrasing, and, and we need to throw this money at it and worry about the deficit later. Are you of that mindset? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, if in this moment you decide to tidy up the books at the expense of stabilizing or, or helping supporting the economy, you've made an enormous mistake. And, and the economy and the people who are trying to get back to work in it have to be the top priority. The, the federal government has in effect borrowed on behalf of every entity in the United States, handed the money to businesses and to individuals across the, the, the 50 states and, and territories. And, and that's, that's what it should do. Um, it pains me as a former CEO director to see the numbers. They're enormous. But remember, the problem is enormous. So that, that's, that's what you have to do. The concern I have genuinely is that we had a budget situation that was unsustainable prior to the pandemic. And Congress showed no appetite to deal with it, no capacity to come to terms with it. We're going to come out of this and, and roll the clock forward two, three, four, I don't know what the right number of years is, and look at a situation that is dramatically worse comparably unsustainable, and what is Congress going to do? I worry about that all the time. Well, this is going to get real before long um, because, I mean, yeah. the one the one place where this seems like it's going to hit first or maybe will is Medicare. So the latest annual report shows that um, program starting to run short of money in 2026, but that was not accounting for anything that's happened uh, with the coronavirus recession. So that could end up being a 2023 problem by the time we get that those numbers next year. How are we going to address problems like this? I mean, is it just going to be when at the very last second when we have no choice, we're just going to raise taxes by the bare minimum needed to resolve the problem? Or is there, can you foresee something more coherent than that? The important thing is that if Congress is going to deal with this effectively, it's going to have to be done on a bipartisan basis. So it can't be just tax increases, nor will it be just spending cuts. It'll be some combination of the, both of those. I would expect, however, that this will take place in the context of an economy that's not zooming along, it's growing steadily, but probably at an unsatisfactory pace on the heels of the worst economic event in anyone's lifetime. And that's going to be a tough sell. And, and for the, the Congress to be successful, it's going to require genuine White House leadership, a president who has told the American people to be ready for this. It's necessary. It's important to them. And they should be supportive of the efforts in Congress. Without that, it doesn't come together. What can you cut, Doug? I mean, you understand the political realities here. What kind of things can you actually cut in the federal budget? Uh, you can cut anything in the federal budget, but you cannot rely on what we have relied on so far. Cuts in annual discretionary spending, which are now, uh, you know, less than a third of the budget and going south. They're a tiny, tiny piece. You have to take on 
the big, quote, mandatory entitlements, the Social Securities, Medicare's, Medicaid's, Affordable Care Acts of the world. And, you know, none of this in involves absolute cuts. It just means slowing the growth rate so that instead of having Social Security grow at a, a rate of 7% a year over the next 10 years, something that no revenue stream will attain, it's growing in something like 4% a year over the next 10 years, something a revenue stream might grow at. And then you can bring things into balance. I mean, you can cut defense, right? That's a lot of money, and we've cut defense before. I mean, that's politically doable, isn't it? Um, it it's doable to a point, but remember the defense budget is uh, the federal budget writ small. It's got a big retirement problem. It's got a big health care spending problem. It's not just you know armaments and, and, and men anymore. It, it is the personnel and the equipment and then a whole bunch of other things that support them. And the other things are really expensive right now. What about uh, support for pension plans? This this latest stimulus package that's trying to make its way through Congress would include some assistance at the city and, and state level for pensions. Some Republicans are saying, no, that's not the way this money should be used. Uh, I guess they're arguing that a lot of these pension plans had deep-seated problems well before the pandemic. Um, should there be some money, though, earmarked? I mean, you're talking about a lot of people here who could lose benefits, lose lots of money, and hurt their retirement. So there are a variety of um, pension issues out there. Uh, the state and local pensions are one part of the problem. And those are structural problems that a lot of the states have had for a long time. Illinois is the poster child for this. And I think that the sentiment in Congress is that that's not a place where we spend pandemic response money. That's not something that was created by the, the, the virus. That's not something that we should try to ameliorate, but with the money devoted to fighting the virus. So put that aside, there's still a lot of problems out there. There's the cash is gone. When the customers disappeared, so did the sales taxes. When the workers got laid off, so did the payroll taxes. And so, you know, the revenue is missing out there in, st in the state and local governments. Do you want to give them some federal support for that or rely on loans? They have a facility at the Fed. You could say the same thing to them. You say to America's big businesses, go borrow at the Fed and deal with that. And then there are also increased spending fighting the, the public health battle and the, the first responders and the the health costs are a real cost. I think they're in the national interest and, and the Congress will, in fact, support those. I think they should. But it's drawing lines in those categories, right? That all makes sense abstractly. But what what dollars go where? I think that's the problem that they're struggling with. There are also out there other private pensions that, that people are worried about. Um, and uh, those are also uh, problems that that existed prior to the pandemic. And, and there have been attempts to roll that in here. And so far, they haven't been successful. Doug, I was interviewing uh, uh, Peter Navarro, the White House economist. This is a few years back. And I brought up, I don't remember exactly, something you had said or maybe a study from your think tank. And he got a sour look on his face and he said, uh, Holt Aiken is a never Trumper. Do you, do you consider yourself a never Trumper? Uh, no, I don't actually understand why I would say that. Um, it's real simple. Um, uh, what we do at the American Action Forum is you get up every day and you look at the policy issues that are in play and you ask yourself, is this big or small, important, unimportant, and is what is being proposed good or bad policy? And that doesn't have a name. It doesn't have a party. Now, I am a Republican, and I, my, my notion of good policy uh, tends to hew toward private market solutions and, and uh, a lot of uh, economic freedoms, but it, it's not personal. That's, that's a mischaracterization. Well, let me, uh, you, I mean, I would consider you a traditional Republican, uh, perhaps an endangered Republican at this point. Um, there's a, there is this group of, uh, I think you could call them traditional Republicans, the Lincoln Project. I'm sure you know about these guys, George Conway, the lawyer is one of them. 
Um, they're running, they're running, I mean, it's a small group, but they're pretty clever. They've got some funding. They're running ads against Trump. They want to sort of, I think they want to have an alternative Republican convention. Uh, is that something like you might join in on, uh, you know, from the economic perspective? Why not? No, I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm a member of the Republican Party. And if the, the party isn't doing things that I think are correct and best for the American people, then I should work within my party to fix it. And walking out doesn't do any good. Um, so I, I am, for example, not a big fan of this administration's uh, international trade policies. I think they have on balance uh, been unsuccessful and have harmed the U.S. economic interests in some significant ways. Um, walking out doesn't change that. Making the case and, and electing people who, who have a different approach, that solves the problem. We know that President Trump's been talking about more tariffs on China. I mean, we had the trade war before the pandemic sort of was on the back burner, right? And now he's talking about tariffs again. Do you think, do you agree with that, A, and B, could that maybe get some folks rallied around Trump as we move closer to the election, This, this as he continues to sort of double down on this anti-China sentiment? Oh, there's no question that I think this is a very conscious positioning prior to the election. You know, he, he really went in with the notion that he could run on the economy, his record, that, that was the key to the reelect. And the pandemic um, destroyed the easy version of that narrative. Um, the, the next idea was that somehow he could, you know, run on his response to the pandemic as a leader who dealt with the worst crisis in the history of this country. Um, and I think the Democrats have very cleverly put him in a, in a, in a bind on both of those with their handling of the so-called reopening question. Like we never really closed. So it's a bit much to say it's like reopening, but reopening more. Um, they have basically tried to characterize every attempt to reopen quickly as uh, something the president in a, in a sort of a callous re-election re uh, uh, gamble is going to risk American lives to do. And so they make it look like he handled the crisis poorly if, if he pushes for reopening, but if he doesn't, there's more economic damage. So he, he's in a terrible place. Uh, on those two issues, which he had originally thought he could own. So what do you do? You go back to some things that were very successful. Blame China. He blames China for the pandemic. He blames China for uh, poor U.S. economic performance. He used tariffs in both cases. He's going back to a, a tried and true strategy. Four years ago, might work again. There seems to be at least a 50-50 chance that Joe Biden uh, becomes president. Uh, and if Joe Biden becomes president, then there's a reasonable chance the Senate uh, flips to the Democrats and we have Democratic control of the government. So uh, just the sort of the big items in uh, Biden's economic plan. So he he started out as the moderate among the Democrats, but now he's kind of moving to the left. I mean, he's, yeah. he's starting to adopt, you know, sound like he supports Medicare for all or certainly Medicare for more. So expanded Medicare, I think, is his latest idea is uh, lower the uh, eligibility age from 65 to 60. And then he does have uh, plans for some tax hikes, raise, raising the corporate rate, raising uh, personal rates, things like that. Um, let me just ask a, a kind of a, those on, on a bullet point basis. Um, is it plausible we could see expanded Medicare or some new federal health care program? Uh, I don't think expanded Medicare. I don't think the universal versions of these are in the cards. There is no appetite for that. Uh, there's a really serious policy issue associated with the 20 million jobs lost in April and the likely additional millions of jobs that are going to be um, uh, lost in the, in the May report. Uh, those are people who used to have 
employer-sponsored insurance by and large. Some might be in the individual market. Some might be in Medicaid. But th those ESI folks are potentially new, newly uninsured individuals as we go forward. And, and so far, I haven't heard anyone really talk in any deep way about how to address that, particularly on the Republican side. And if, and if there isn't something, a government program will be created to deal with it. Right? They, they, it's it's a health crisis, and these individuals will be uninsured. That's unacceptable. So, so that's a route for an, an additional federal program. I think there's no question that's something to keep an eye on. Well, to your mind, what's the what would be the best market market based solution to? Uh, I mean, the whole problem here is that you know um, health insurance is connected with your job, and if you know you, it's not portable and so on. Um, what's the best market based uh, solution to that problem? Uh, the the John McCain proposal from uh, 2008, which in fact, would have provided. What was it? Remind us. Yeah, it would, it would have provided universal financial support for health insurance, uh, especially those who didn't have employer-sponsored insurance that could go to a an individual market, uh, as as many people are now in the ACA. Um, but which would have had much more in the way of a market-driven reforms. Um, it was viewed as potentially too disruptive to employer-sponsored insurance, and for that reason, scared some people. And the lesson I took away from that is, number one, uh, you should be a raging incrementalist when it comes to healthcare reform. People are afraid of these big reforms. Uh, the ACA looks like that. And uh, number two, you should be respectful of the employer-sponsored insurance. Um, even if it's an accident of history, came out of World War II, not by intent, but because it was the only way to give someone a raise, it's what people know and understand, and you have to build off it if you want to be successful covering people. Well, given that what's happening right now is not at all incremental, um, what do you think is the likelihood that um, that Congress could pass something that would expand health care in some fashion within the next two or three years? I, I think there's a chance to, that in order to cover these individuals, they will invent something. But I don't see a bipartisan consensus for a new direction in coverage. It's it's just not happened in, in the past 10 years. I don't see anything about this that, that causes... Uh, a change in that sentiment over the next two or three, there will be a, an, a, an appreciation that those who got laid off in the in the uh, the recession need some help, and they'll get it. But it'll be targeted on them, and it'll be temporary. So, just one more follow up, and then I will respectfully yield to my colleague in the blue dress. Um, <laughs> is it plausible that um, Congress could pass something if Democrats have a one or two seat majority in the Senate and they control the House? It's hard to get to 60. So um, I, I don't think anything big goes through uh, on that route. I, I think what we've seen recently is that um, the American people are wary of, of that, that sort of single party jam something big through. It was unpopular with the ACA and cost them control of the Congress. It was unpopular with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and it cost Republicans. And they, they want to see what they saw in the CARES Act, which is you guys got together and did something on behalf of the, the country. Try that again, and we'll keep the approval rating in the 30s. Otherwise, we're back to single digits. Doug, do you think this country's corporate income tax is headed higher regardless of who's in control of Congress? I mean, is this just one of the things we're going to have to do, you know, when, post this pandemic? Well, I, in general, we're going to have to raise more revenue. That, that That's a fait accompli in my view. So it's, it's going to raise the question, will we raise it in a sort of – uh, crude fashion by just jacking up rates, which would be more economically destructive, uh, destructive than any other approach? Or will, will we sort of take another look at the corporate tax and say, okay, 
we didn't try really that hard to do a lot of base broadening. Let's get the revenue that way. Go to the individual tax, do the same thing. Um, you know, I, I hope we do the latter. I hope we continue the march uh, down the road of tax reform, which is low rates, broad base. Now, broad the base basically means more people, taxing more people, right? Um, not necessarily. I mean, we could, you know, sort of uh, broaden the, lower the exclusions and get more people into the income tax. But, but I, I'm talking about sort of, corporate deductions for a variety of things, you know, that you could just, just, just wipe them out and, you know, get rid of this special um, tax treatment of a lot of different activities. All right, Doug Holtz-Aiken, thanks so much. Always a pleasure to see you. Thanks for joining us on this Electionomics podcast. Thank you. All right, and thank you, everyone, for joining us this week. Uh, be sure to follow me at Alexis TV News. And me at Rick J. Newman. And I think Doug actually puts a poem on his Twitter account every now and then. <laughs> Doug, you want to tell people where to find your poetry on Twitter? Uh, uh, AmericanAction uh, AmericanActionForum.org. And um, someone replaced the, the, the sign outside my office with Poet Laureate instead of President. So that's what I did. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks so much. Be sure to rate and uh, review what you just saw. And we will see you next time. Bye.